Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Andrea Penrose about her latest novel, The Diamond of London. Andrea is best known as a writer of historical mysteries set in Regency Britain. We spoke a couple of years ago about her Rexford and Sloan series, and I have discussed her Lady Ariana novels on my blog. This latest book, although also set in the early 19th century, is not a mystery but a fictionalized biography of Lady Hester Stanhope, a woman who defied the conventions of her aristocratic background to chart her own course. We meet her first in old age. To understand me and the forces of nature that have shaped my family, you need to know about the diamond. The story began in 1687, when the gem was discovered in the famous color mine of Golconda, an independent sultanate located in the heart of exotic India. Legend has it that the enslaved soul who found the treasure cut a slash in his thigh and hid it in the wound. And then, with yet another show of boldness and bravery, he escaped during the Mughal siege of the Sultan's fort and made his way to the coast. There he encountered an English sea captain and offered to split the proceeds of the diamond sale in return for safe passage out of India. Alas, his courage was no substitute for cunning. The poor fellow paid for his naivete in blood. The captain, who had a far more profitable deal in mind, murdered him and sold the stone at 410 carats, it was the largest diamond ever found, to a gem merchant named Jamchand. It changed hands again in 1701, when Jamchand sold it to my great-great-grandfather, Thomas Pitt, a raffish adventurer turned nabob of the formidable East India Company, which had established a lucrative trading monopoly between Britain and the vast subcontinent. There were rumors that Pitt's acquisition of the magnificent gem was less than legal. But then the actions of those who are clever and daring are often shadowed in whispers of skullduggery. The truth is, Pitt and the diamond were made for each other. Both were bigger than life and glittered with a hard-edged fire, a fire lit by an inner ice-blue flame that seemed to burn both hot and cold, casting a mesmerizing glow. And now, please join me in welcoming Andrea Penrose. Hi, Andrea. It's lovely to chat with you again. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. We talked about your background in our previous interview, uh, which listeners can find by searching for your name at newbooksnetwork.com or at the various podcast sites. So let's go straight to the present novel. How did you discover Lady Hester Stanhope, and how did you go from discovery to signing a contract for this novel? Um, Well, I write a lot of books set in the Regency, Jane Austen's era, and uh, so I read a lot about the era. Um, I first came to know about Lady Hester through her later life, when she was considered the most famous and eccentric traveler of the day. Um, she left Britain in 1810 and settled in the Middle East, where she came to be known as the Queen of the Desert. 
She had her own fiefdom, dressed in men's clothing, rode astride at the head of her own private army. She pioneered modern archaeological methods, brokered deals between rival lord lords, hosted visiting kings and queens, gave advice to the region uh, on the region to British diplomats. Um, but the more I read about her, the more I became fascinated by her early life in Britain. Uh, to me, it was far more interesting. It's her origin story, and if you will, it's mostly relegated to um, the shadows of traditional narrative, despite her many amazing accomplishments. I so um, Kensington actually came to me, my publisher, and and they're looking to find hidden stories in history of of extraordinary women. And Lady Hester came to mind, and they really liked the idea, so they they gave it a go. This is a fictionalized biography, as you noted. Um, how did that affect your approach to the story? Um, well, you know, you you have to. I I felt very strongly that I wanted to stick um, very carefully to her real timeline. I didn't want to invent too much. I I saw, I had a wonderful scholarly biography um, on her, and so that sort of gave me a skeleton outline of where she was, what she was doing. And then there were a number, um, because she came from a very prominent family, there were many of her letters have been saved. And in fact, her niece put out a, a book of letters. So in reading those, I felt like I got a good sense of her voice and her sense of humor and her wit. And then, of course, so I have this timeline, I have to, when I know she's meeting someone like Bo Brummel, then that's where the fiction kicks in. I have to sort of imagine um, how she would react to him. And and um, that's where the, the sort of fun and creativity, I, I hope that I've managed to capture her, her true spirit in in the scenes that I've created. So although we see the older Lady Hester at the beginning and at the end, uh, most of the story, as you mentioned, is her origin story. It takes place during the lead up to her escape from Britain between 1799 and 1809. So I can guess why you as a novelist uh, might have focused your attention there rather than on her later life. But for the sake of our listeners, please talk a, a bit about what makes the origin story the place where you wanted to set your fiction. Well, I was captivated by what a strong sense of self she had, even as a child, and how determined she was to have a voice and be heard. Um, she showed sort of the same grit and daring as her great-great-grandfather, Diamond Pitt, who I, I know we're going to get to in a moment uh, with another question. Um, and wielding her own considerable wit and charm, she rebelled against the rules and against all odds, though not without disasters to go along with her triumphs. She earned a place for herself in the highest echelon of the government, working with her uncle, who was prime minister of Britain, um, as his private secretary and his hostess, 
and she was included in the debates of the great issues facing Britain. Her personal life was also just as colorful, and she, as she was intimately involved with some of the leading men of the era. I came to see these formative years, how she became the Lady Hester of later life, as sort of the heart and soul of her story, and I really wanted to tell that. Even before 1799, she's had what we might call an unconventional upbringing, um, especially for that time where people were much more constrained in their um, social lives than, than people are now. So tell us a bit about her father and his views on both politics and his children's education. Well, he was quite a character. Um, Charles Lord Stanhope was a brilliant scientist and inventor. Among other accomplishments, he created the Stanhope Printing Press, which became sort of the standard that was used for printing books um, up into the mid-1800s, and a lens for increasing the power of microscopes. And along with his good friend Benjamin Franklin, he was considered the leading expert in experimenting with electricity. But like many of his other relatives, he had a very eccentric side. He had very radical ideas on how to raise children. And so Lady Hester and her siblings had a very odd education, to say the least. He thought that society corrupted innocence. So, you know, he apprenticed his sons to a blacksmith. So they would, even though they were aristocrats, to learn manual labor that was um, very good for the soul. Hester was put out to feed chickens. Um, and they did learn how to read and write, but um, it was really quite um, quite unusual for an aristocratic family to act like that. And he also tried to prevent his daughters from attending any social gatherings as they came of age. Um, because again, he thought society corrupted. He was also an ardent supporter of the French Revolution, even though he was a titled aristocrat. He began calling himself Citizen Stanhope and renounced all his um, aristocratic um, title and dressed as a in very plain clothes, and he became the laughingstock of London. Ironically, though he claimed to believe in liberty and equality, he was becoming more and more of a tyrant at home, and that set the scene for coming dramas with his children. Yes, uh, Hester makes her escape, and that's not an overly dramatic description <laughs> from evening no. uh, the family yeah. estate in the summer of 1800, uh, but not before a dramatic and alarming confrontation with her father. It's only chapter one, uh, so please tell us what happens and why that proves to be the last straw as far as Hester is concerned. After a series of confrontations, and Lady Hester was endearingly loyal to her loyal to her younger brothers. Um, it, her her mother had passed away, and and her father had remarried. He had three sons, um, but his second wife basically abandoned the family because she just couldn't live with them. So Lady Hester took on the role of protecting her younger brothers. There is a point, we don't know exactly what triggered it, but um, where her father pins her against the wall and puts a knife to her throat. Um, she manages to talk him down, but um, 
her late mother's family, the powerful Pitts, immediately offers her a home with them. And suddenly she has a chance to spread her wings and move into society. But she doesn't forget her brothers. They, they, she will come back to, um, to save them from his tyranny, too. So as you say, she flees to London, uh, where she has numerous relatives from the Pitt family. And before we talk more about her, tell us about the family and especially her uncle, William Pitt the Younger. Right. Well, the Pitts are an amazing family. I mean, the stories that surround them sound almost made up because they're so dramatic, really. They're, the legendary rise really begins with Lady Hester's great-great-grandfather, Thomas Pitt. He was a raffish adventurer turned nabob of the British East India Company, where he made a fortune in trade. He also procured, whether by hook or crook isn't clear, an extraordinarily large diamond. In fact, today it's probably the second most famous diamond next to the Hope Diamond. Um, it was known as the Pitt Diamond. Then he sold it to the French regent, um, the Duke of Orléans, in 1717. It became known as the Regent Diamond, and he became fabulously wealthy. The Pitts then intermarried with the prominent Stanhope family and the Grenville clan, creating a powerful political dynasty. Um, her uncle, William Pitt the Younger, uh, became the youngest prime minister in British history. He was only 24. And his father before him had also been prime minister. So the Pitts really dominated um, British politics. There, In fact, there was a time when nearly every powerful position in the government was held by one of her relatives. Um, so Hester, who considered herself and was really just as smart as the men, desperately wanted to be part of this. Um, there was, of course, one elemental obstacle. She was a woman in a society that had very strict rules on what a highborn lady could and couldn't do. But that didn't intimidate Lady Hester, as we shall see. During a previous visit in 1799, uh, she had made the acquaintance of the dandy Beau Brummel, whom you mentioned. It's a great incident when we see them together. Can you give us a short summary of how Hester and Beau Brummel become friends, including that initial meeting? Well, Lady Hester met Beau Brummel through her uncle, William Pitt um, the Younger, at one of the aristocratic parties that happened every night in London. Um, they both had, you know, they were very sharp, sardonic um, people, saw the foibles in society. I think they bonded because they were kindred souls, sort of sharing a feeling of being outliers. They were both really smart, clever sardonic. Beau Brummel was known for his cutting wit and sense of style. They were both bold thinkers, yet they were really constricted by the rules and restrictions of society. Brummel wasn't from a wealthy family. He depended on um, being the life of the party and having influential friends who would give him entree into the right clubs and social circle so he could live the, the fancy lifestyle he wanted. Lady Hester was also dependent. Her Pitt family was provided her with the place to live, clothing, spending money, but neither of them had the full freedom they craved. And um, I think that 
I think that really created a, a bond between them. Um, there were some rumors that they were romantically involved, but most historians agree it was merely a friendship. And actually, that friendship unraveled once Lady Hester became attracted to someone else. Yes, and that someone else is a big part <laughs> in yes. the first half of the novel. Um, so that's another of her cousins, uh, another Thomas Pitt, uh, known as Lord Camelford, and quite dramatically as the half-mad lord, which tells you a lot. <laughs> so he is quite a character. Um, what can you tell us about him and about what draws Hester to him and their relationship? Yeah, Camelford really was another larger-than-life member of her extended family. And he was even more devil-may-care than she was. Um, he was a real black sheep. I mean, really, half-mad lord was his name because he could um, could be very volatile. But he got away with crazy behavior because he was titled and he was wealthy. I think um, his early example of recklessness and to hell with the consequences was a real influence on her, probably not a good one, but they did have a very tempestuous relationship. And I think he appealed to the elemental rebel that really is the essence of her nature. Um, but she was smart enough to know that marrying him would have burned them both to a crisp. So um, he actually, the relationship ended because he was killed in a duel. And when we first hear of him, he has just beaten up somebody in the middle of, I'm forgetting, is it Bond Street? <laughs> yes, his former um, commander, he was a naval officer as a young, a young man, and he um, took umbrage to some certain discipline and thought it was very unfair. And he held that grudge for uh, many years. And he he um, met the fellow on the street and they got into an argument and Camelford lost his temper and caned his former captain. <laughs> and this um, is a real and, historical incident. I mean, yes, you can it find is. it even oh, online. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They, there's a big a satirical print of uh, of it happening um, that was published in London. Um, yes, he was. He would have been in today's world. He would have been in all the gossip columns. Yeah, and and then he, that that's a real historical incident. He then takes Hester to a prize fight, which I think is probably not as historical. I seem to remember you made that up, but it is indicative. So, so can you tell us just a little bit about that? Because that too is fairly early on in the book. It it is, but he he was um, though he was a titled lord, he loved hobnobbing with um, the working class. He would dress up in really shabby clothes. He he loved um, pugilism, prize fighting, and he he um, sort of bankrolled a lot of the matches and provided the the drinks, and um, he loved sort of the blood and guts and violence of that world. Um, and that's a known fact. So I have him take in my um, fictional novel on, on her life, I have him taking her to a prize fight and her responding to 
um, liking that same um, excitement and and um, unfettered um, emotion. It's so different than the very staid upper class drawing rooms. And I think she had part of that fire in her too. Um, and I think in that they were kindred souls. Yeah, one of the things I find so interesting about that is, um, and about the the relationships between her and Camelford and and her and Brummel, is that it, it's there's this contradiction. Uh, I'm not sure that's even quite the right word, but she and Brummel get along because they're both satirical. But Brummel is much more accepting of society's conventions, and as you mentioned the um, expectations of women, especially noble women at that time, were very limited to, you know, get married, have um, at least two sons, preferably. Um, And then, because it's not yet the Victorian era, you could pretty much do what you wanted as long as you were discreet. But Hester is, is, there's a connection between her being drawn to that prize fight and her not being willing to go along with the game even long enough to have the heir and the spare. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I've questioned, too, what was that? Perhaps it was the fire of the pit diamond. I mean, she really did have the same sort of inde- fierce independent spirit and daring of her great-great-grandfather, Thomas Pitt, who broke all the rules to create his own legend, really. And that was incredibly rare for a woman to even try in her era. And i that's really what attracted me to her story. Um, Her prominent family and their wealth gave her the luxury of not having to be brokered in marriage. You know, she didn't have to marry to help create um, an alliance of families. Her family was already very powerful. Um, And I think her uncle William Pitt the Younger was in no hurry to lose her as a confidant and 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 his hostess at 10 Downing Street. So her rebellious independence was accepted by her family to a point. Um, I think she also realized that while marriage would give her a certain degree of freedom and control over her life, um, that in the end, she did know that men had full control over women. You know, they had full control over their wives. Women couldn't own property. They couldn't um, inherit money. Well, I guess they could. They didn't inherit um, through the normal channels. A, 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 a great aunt could leave a bequest, but basically, they were. They had no um, real rights to control their own lives. Um, and I think. Um, her independence was the one thing she could truly control in her life. And I think that desire to have her own destiny, be, be in control of her own destiny, was really the driving force to the very end of her life. I think she was really aware of not wanting to give up herself. Yes, yeah, she really is a diamond. I mean, the title is perfect for her because, yes, there's the pit diamond, but she herself is like a diamond. She's bright and sparkling, but she's also hard in some ways or hard-edged, um, and she can really cut. Um, 
even the people she's closest to at, at moments. There were there were times when I just wanted to shake her and say, "What are you yeah, doing?" No, right? she was. Yeah, she was. She had her flaws. <laughs> Being a diamond, she was also enduring. I what what struck me, what I came away admiring so much was her um, her resilience. You know, it, it the disappointments and some of the heartaches she suffered would have crushed most people. And I was just amazed that she could um, remain optimistic in a sense or still believe in herself, not not allow um, her her idealism, her desire to be who she was um, be taken away from her. I mean, that's really rare in, in any age to have that strength of character um, when it when you're going through really difficult times. It is, but she's also beautiful, and I don't mean just physically beautiful. I mean uh, her character, her her devotion to what she thinks is important, and that kind of thing. I mean, she's a very appealing character. She she has an incredibly fierce loyalty that is it is really endearing. It's it absolutely covers up her flaws. Her her love and um and nurturing of her younger brothers um is is through thick and thin um was really amazing and the rest of her family she adored um Pitt the younger um and he basically drank himself to death. He was a workaholic and she cared for him. She she did everything she could to make his life easier. Um she loved him. I mean, she had she even though she was sort of could be a, a tough personality and and observic, acerbic and and um sardonic, she was she really had a great capacity for tenderness and and love for her her family and for those she cared about. So let's talk a little bit about some of these other events. Um let's we can start with the brothers. Uh, there are three brothers. What happens to them? Uh they're they're kind of a, a an interesting story. The older one um she helps escape literally tying sheets um together and climbing out a window of the family estate so she can he can escape her father's uh, tyranny. She arranges through her relatives that he he's desperate to go to university in Europe and get some polish, you know, learn about the world. She arranges that with her relatives that he has money, the the means to uh, to go to a German university, and he becomes a little um, like many first boy. He's the heir now to his father's um, title. He he then decides he doesn't have to listen to her anymore and their their relationship gets a little um uh testy um and but her two younger brothers who again she she saves from her father's tyranny and arranges for them to be in the military they're very eager to do that one goes to the navy one goes to the army but the youngest one eventually transfers from the navy to the army to be with his brother and they they adore her and um she really nurtures them um and is is 
they, very close to them. Um, but I won't give any spoilers past that. <laughs> no, no. But one thing that's interesting, uh, one of the many things that are interesting about Hester is that her life in a way really opens up after her uncle loses his job as prime minister. And she goes off to, is it Warmel? I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced. Warmel Castle. Walmer Castle. Yes, he he does, he takes the position. He resigns his being prime minister because he has um, disagrees with the king over a, a very uh, an, an issue in in the government. And but he's given this. Um, it's called a, a position called um, Lord. Um, oh gosh, I I can't think of the exact. Oh, um, it's Lord of the Sinkports. Lord Lord of the Sinkports. Yes. Um, and he is in charge of protecting the coast, the southern coast of England, from a possible invasion from France. So she accompanies him to Walmer, and um, um, she was a superb rider, and the local army troops absolutely fell in love with her because she always accompanied her uncle, who wasn't overly outdoorsy, um, and and she she added a flair and a dash to his reviewing the troops, um, and and so she just loved being part of that. They would do anything for her. They would drill harder. They would. They just loved when she came to watch. Um, and it also turned out um, she had a wonderful skill for gardening. She knew her uncle loved to walk and sort of think outside. Um, and uh, she created these beautiful and secluded gardens designs, which exist to this day. Walmer Castle is now a big museum and um, tourist attraction, and they have Lady Hester's gardens there. Um, uh, it was also, um, you know, it's sort of the greatest triumph in her life, this time period. She would, um, she really was um, helping him put together the coalition. They had many of the prominent diplomats coming down to the castle as Pitt was plotting his return to government. And indeed, he was um, invited back to be prime minister when Napoleon crowned himself emperor. So the two of them were really the major forces as the the Napoleonic Wars came into high gear, really. Um, and she um, she really was a part of, of the political process. She was um, his confidant there, and she was riding out with the troops. It was really, he was, she really shone in, in those years. She was at Walmer Castle. That position also brings her in contact with Major General John Moore. I'm not going to ask you to give away uh, anything about their relationship, but can you tell us a bit about him and who he was? Yeah, you know, I hope you can hear me exhaling a fluttery sigh. You know, I, I absolutely fell in love with Sir John Moore. He is just the storybook hero, you know. An author would think twice about creating him as readers might roll their eyes and say he's too good to be true. But it's it's really kind of um, he really was an amazing uh, person. You know, something that about him captivated me the first time I looked at a famous portrait that was done by um 
a, a Regency air painter named uh, Sir Thomas Lawrence. First of all, he has very kind eyes and a wonderful smile. He also um, dressed modestly. His his uniform has no medals and and you know sashes that most of the generals pranced around in. He just was completely down to earth and I never came across a negative word about him his soldiers loved him because he truly cared for them and tried to make sure they were treated um, very well he was a courageous in battle honorable kind and open-minded it was so interesting I discovered that his mother was an extraordinary woman she wanted to be a doctor his father was a doctor and because women, of course, couldn't go to medical school, her, his father trained her to be a doctor, and the local populace accepted her as as they would a man. So Moore understood and appreciated a smart, independent woman. Um, and she first meets him at Walmer Castle because he's helping her uncle organize the troops for defending the coast from possible evasion. They do ride out together. As I said, Hester was a fabulous equestrian, and, and so was Moore. So they came to really enjoy each other's company. But then he's posted to Europe for the war, um, and they lose touch for a time. But they then do reconnect. Are there any other characters or incidents that I haven't mentioned that you'd like listeners to hear about? Oh my gosh, there 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 are an awful lot of them. There, of course, is the very um, charming, handsome um, diplomat um, Granville uh, Leverson Gower, who who um, she became infatuated with when she returned with her um, uncle. To when he became prime minister for the second time. This was really, she thought being a diplomat's wife might be the perfect life for her because she'd be involved in the politics she loved. She would be able to counsel her husband, be a, a sounding board like she was for her uncle. Um, so she really um, kind of had her heart set on, on Gower. But, um, you know, things began to um, happen. And uh, again, I won't begin to uh, to give away too much, but that was an interesting part of her uh, her life, too. Yes, it was. I, I remember him. He was there. There are photo, um, paintings of him on uh, Wikimedia, too. And he is um, he was quite the uh, he the was goddess. called the most yeah. handsome man in, in Britain. Um, and it it is I have seen there is a full length it must be you know over six feet tall of him and it's really quite a striking um, a striking picture. So what would you like people to take away from the Diamond of London? Um, I you know I love that um, history has so many fundamental issues that are so relevant to our own times. You know, I hope readers will find the story of a woman striving for independence and to be recognized in a rule in a world really that was truly um, ruled by men is as fascinating and inspiring as as I do. Um, I Hester had triumphs and disasters, passions, heartbreaks. 
and I think her remarkable courage and resilience will really resonate with um, um, modern readers. I mean, she craved intellectual stimulation. She wanted to work at something that she felt had meaning and purpose. She wanted love as an equal and a respected partner. And she refused to settle for less. And I just think her story is is really quite an amazing one, both both fascinating and inspiring. I happen to know that your next Rexford and Sloan novel has already entered the publication process. Uh, are you already hard at work on something new? Well, there is the next one that's coming. <laughs> you know, I do have to start on the next uh, Rexford and Sloan, and um, I do have um, I do a self-published series um, called the Lady Ariana Historical Mysteries, um, and I am working on one of those as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Andrea. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Andrea Penrose about the Diamond of London. Find out more about her at andreapenrose.com. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I blog about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.